Welcome to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives and legacies of people we may pass on the street every day, unaware of their extraordinary experiences and accomplishments. It's a celebration of their lives and of humanity itself. There's a common theme, common questions running in the background of every unspoken, unsung interview if you listen for it. What keeps us on course? What motivates us? Perhaps the core question is, who are we? Our guests have included artists, musicians, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, soldiers, and pastors. We've been privileged to learn about the courage it can take not only to survive life's challenges, but also to thrive in the face of change. We've looked at the many sides of success. I thought about that a lot as I engaged this month's guest in conversation. Jody Calcara is a gifted musician and songwriter. Jody and I both grew up in a small town on the Southern California coast. His nostalgic love for that coastal village and gratitude for the life he's led as a musician parent and grandparent offers yet another vantage point on success in music and in life. Meet Jody Calcara. Carol, welcome to Unspoken, Unsung. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great, great. You know, as I thought about doing this interview with you, I felt a sense of great gratitude for my good fortune to grow up in really what was a small town surrounded by so many good friends. Our hometown, Carlsbad, and the mutual lifelong friends inspired a number of songs that you wrote. Yes, they did. And and then now, I mean, I just moved down here after moving to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, 50 years ago, and moved down here this summer. And every time I drive around, I'm just flooded with memories. In fact, right across the street from here, the Magnolia School, where I went for two or three different grades and had baseball practice there and Pony League and stuff. It just... That's just elementary so school, here. isn't it? Just amazing. So. Yeah. What, what, do you remember which grades you did there? I did fourth and fifth. Wow. <laughs> One memory that pops out, um, I would eat the the school cafeteria meals, especially if they had hamburgers, you know. So one day I had I was having my my lunch with a couple friends, and unfortunately, 
and one of the little things was uh, the spinach. And I know it was canned spinach, and it was like greasy and awful, and there's no way you could eat it. It's like it was awful. But you had when you were finished, you had to raise your hand, <clears throat> and then a teacher would a monitor teacher would come by and say, "Okay, you can go." So we came by and we tried to hide our spinach under the napkins, and she goes, "Ah, eat your spinach." You know. So we, so what we did, we put all the spinach in our mouths, raised our hands. She let us go, and then we ran out to the uh, trash can and spit it out. <laughs> and in retrospect, it might have been worse that way because we had to have that hor- horrible spinach in our mouth for like a minute and a half. <laughs> oh, that's good. So yours was a very musical family. Uh, Does that history begin with your parents, or is it a multi-generational part of your heritage? It mainly started with my father. He grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, saw the big bands and stuff in New York City and stuff and was wowed and started playing guitar. And so when I was a little kid, he was a painting contractor as well as on the weekends. He was a musician. He played guitar and sang and fronted his own little band, the Calcara Combo. Wow. You know, trumpet, piano, stand-up bass, sometimes mm-hmm. drums, you know, and it varied. And uh, I remember as a little kid, <clears throat> they'd have rehearsal night in the kitchen, and we'd be in bed, and but the hall door was open so we could hear them. And, and he kept forgetting the words to the songs, and my mom would always, she didn't sing, but she remembered all the words to the songs. <laughs> But that started us off. And then as we got older, my older brother Chuck started playing the clarinet. My sister, my much older sister, two years older, played the violin and piano. And and then I started playing the trumpet. So in the early morning hours, I would hear the squeak of my brother's clarinet. And then through the bedroom wall, I'd hear the piano of my sister playing, nay, 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 you know. Then as I got older, I, I got into guitar and bass, guitar and rock and roll, and never played the trumpet again. <laughs> yeah. Your, your father didn't push music on you, did he? No, but he uh, um, he really kind of got me started in the rock and roll. Uh, when the Beatles came out, um, uh, I had this little funky radio in my bedroom, and uh, he, there was, he had this uh, old acoustic guitar with an F-hole. It was a really nice guitar, but it was missing a few strings. He hadn't played it in a while. And he walked in on me one day, and I was playing along to I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a pretty complicated chord progression. And I didn't know how to tune the guitar I mean, or anything, so I just played what the, on the low strings, one string at a time. And he goes, you're playing the bass part. That's pretty good. Do you want me to buy you a electric bass and an amp? And you can imagine what I answered, you know. And that that started me off. And um, my friend Richie Langan gave me one uh, bass guitar lesson, and uh, that got me going. Next thing I knew, I was in a brother with um, his two of his brothers, Gary and Kenny Langan and Joe Saunders, and, and the Outcast. And and uh, next thing I know, I was in a band. You know, I was singing harmonies, singing lead on a few songs, and uh, oh, I'm Henry the Eighth, I am. Is one of the songs I sang. <laughs> And it was so much fun. It was so much fun. So your parents, how did they meet? They met at Camp Pendleton. Uh, my father joined the Marine Corps in 1940, you know, before we got involved, way before we got involved in the war. And my mother was in, uh, grew up in southern Utah, Panguage, near uh, Bryce Canyon. And when the war started, she went, she moved with her parents to get work up in Salt Lake City. And she was an uh, uh, elevator operator. And uh, 
my father, uh, when the war kicked in, he was in the Marine Corps and, and uh, went to Guadalcanal, our first uh, offensive uh, move in the in the war in the Pacific. And he uh, survived that, and he survived the malaria, and he sent home. Actually, t- they thought he was going to die from malaria, but he, he went home and survived. And then he mm. went out to Camp Pendleton to train other uh, Marines. And so they met. My mother joined the Marines and, and went, ended up in Camp Pendleton. So they met there and married in 1944 and lived in Oceanside for a while. And then they moved to Carlsbad when I was probably a year and a half old. So Carlsbad has always been my hometown. You were born in Oceanside? Yeah, I was born at the Oceanside uh, Hospital. So in the 40s, I doubt that there were many real opportunities for women. What what was your mom's service? What did she do in the Marine Corps? To be honest, I'm not really sure. I mean, uh, I forget what they called the the women Marines. You know, there was wax and waves and stuff. But uh, um, she might have worked at... at, uh, the commissary out there. I think that mm, might have been mm-hmm. it. And then my dad met her and said, hello, hello there. <laughs> <laughs> Did she pursue a career after the military? Did she work when you were growing up? She mainly, well, there were five kids, you know, so I had four siblings. So that was a full-time job, you know, making us breakfast and washing our clothes, making our lunches for school and, you know, all that. But uh, after we got older, my dad uh, got into real estate, and uh, out at Oceana, he was, had the sales and resales office there, and she uh, worked with him at, as a you know a secretary, and then later on she uh, did volunteer work at the Tri City Hospital. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Five kids. Wow. So, in what what was the age range? It's funny, the the four boys are all like five years apart. My older brother Chuck is five years older than me, and in between us is, is my sister Carla, and then five years younger than me is my brother Jeff, who passed away uh, six, seven years ago, and then ten years younger than me is my brother Rick, who was kind of the surprise, <laughs> the surprise <laughs> brother. <laughs> and my sister desperately wanted a sister, and, and she, and so when my mom came home with Rick, the, the last one. She goes, you had a boy on purpose. You knew I wanted a sister. <laughs> oh, that's cold. That's cold. So what, what role did uh, – no, wait a minute. You know what? You, you had mentioned something earlier about Little League Baseball. That was an important part of your childhood, wasn't it? It was huge. It was the first time I – Ever did anything important in front of people, you know, or, or took responsibility, especially when I was pitching, you know. But uh, my first year at 10 years old, uh, my coach was Ben Acuna, who I loved. He was such a great – he would – he tried to curse, but he toned it down. He would say, God darn it, Cal Kara, get out there and get a hit, you know. And uh, so I played right field at, at 10 years old, and, and I remember Norm Trejo and Ben Benji Acuna were on the team, and they – go warm up with – hey – Benji, warm up with this kid, you know. And they looked at me like, oh, this little squirt, you know. But it was really fun. So I got my, my feet wet then. And then the next year, I uh, I was better. I played first base. And then at 12, I was pitcher and shortstop. And I ended up being the MVP of the team and made the all-star team. And my crowning achievement in Little League was uh, one game I uh, struck out 13 in a six-inning. There were six-inning games then. Uh, eight in a row. But I could not strike out their uh, 
cleanup hitter, Don Watson. And uh, 20 years later, I was down here visiting, and I pulled off this on-ramp, and this other car pulled up, and then it started honking. I looked around, and Don Watson gets out of his car, and he goes, you couldn't strike me out. <laughs> couldn't really. We just started laughing and hugging each other. But that, I, I learned how to you know deal with, to focus under pressure uh, as a pitcher, you know, and it really helped me, um, you know, in other things later in life, you know. And then confidence, too, obviously. Exactly, yeah. Oh, that's terrific. So what role did music play in your family in general? Obviously, with your dad as a gigging musician, what what did it do with the rest of you? Did you just play for fun? We used to sing a lot when we were kids. We, we traveled uh, every two years. We'd go to Utah to visit gra- Grandma and, and relatives, and every five years, We'd go to Utah and then drive all the way across the country to Pennsylvania to see my other grandmother and relatives back there. And we wouldn't sing constantly, but we'd sing in the car. And uh, we'd sing at home. You know, I remember um, down by the old, not the new, but the old mill stream, not the river, but the stream, (laughs) songs like that, you know, that still pop up. And it's it's funny. Uh, The other thing we did in the car on the long drives was we'd count uh, windmills. So who, whoever was sitting on the right side of the car would count the min, windmills on their side and whoever got the most won, you know. And I still look for windmills when I drive, and there aren't that many left. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So one of your most recent songs celebrates life in Carlsbad. Your, your childhood really sounds idyllic. When I tell certain friends, you know, that I grew up, in a, in, on a beach town, so I'd go to the beach, you know, I could ride my bike to the beach, and we had 20 avocado trees in there, in our yard and a bunch of other fruit trees. They said, you're so lucky. We never even knew what avocados were back in Chicago, you know, <laughs> until, and then they cost so much we could hardly buy them, you know. So, uh, what a, yeah, what a, it was a 12,000 12, people back then, I guess, or less, probably. Something like that, yeah. And uh, it was 12,000 when we were in high school, so it was I'm sure eight to ten thousand when we were kids, but what a great town to to be in! You know, we rode our bikes everywhere. You know, and uh, my favorite thing when I was ten, eleven, twelve was uh, I'd uh, go to Danny and Mike Thompson down the street on Wilson Street where I grew up. Just, Can you guys go to the beach? You know, we have to water the gardens first, and they had a big garden out in the back. So I'd go out and help them, and then we'd ride our bikes to the beach. And usually, I had like twenty five cents, so. On the, on the way home, we'd stop at the Tasty Freeze and get a hamburger and fries for like 27 cents. You <laughs> That's know? it. That a whole meal. And it, God, we were so starved by then. It was just like so good. <laughs> and, then, and then the ride, the bike ride home, there's one last hill going up. Uh, I forget what street that uh, It would be uh, Buena Vista. The one last hill and then down and then over to Wilson. But that last hill, I was like... Oh no! I'm always at the bottom of this hill, <laughs> and now when I do my my I do this Zoom workout twice a week, and I told my trainer, you know, there was a hill that I used to face every time I come home from the beach, and uh, sometimes when I'm doing my, all right, ten more seconds, <gasps> I think I'm almost at the top of that hill, you know. So, so many memories in this town. Yeah. Well, it was a small town. I recently. Uh, interviewed Kat Lang and Catalina, and I was at her high school graduation. Her graduating class was bigger than the total enrollment <coughs> of Carlsbad High when we were there. Oh, God. Uh, uh, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. So 
you got started in music when your dad bought you a bass and an amp. And Actually, then... it started in fifth grade. Um, uh, one day, Mr. Striano walked in and said, who wants to play a musical instrument? And I raised my hand. I had no idea what. So he walked around to everybody, and when he got to me, he said, do you know what you want to play? I said, hmm, how about a trumpet? Because I'm sure he needed a trumpet player. <laughs> okay, what's a trumpet? Okay, trumpet. And uh, but So I... Um, took lessons from him and and uh one of my memories is uh he, he'd be tapping his baton on the on the music stand and one time this big fly landed right on my music and he went Blap! and killed it right <laughs> on my and it looked like this giant whole note and i said do i play that note or not you know <laughs> but um then in sixth and seventh grade i was part of uh the junior high uh, at pine street or was it pine avenue i forget pine yeah, avenue yeah. school uh, junior high classical orchestra. There was a building out behind the shop building, which was the music building. And so we stayed after school every day and played classical music, fairly simple stuff, because, you know, we were just little kids. But it was wonderful, you know. Um, and then on Monday nights, the kids and adults would play much more complicated classical mm-hmm. pieces. And I remember a few times I would just be, I was surrounded by the music, so it was like wraparound sound. And I'd, I'd get so enthralled that I forget where I was. And uh, the adult trumpet player was Mr. Coffin, whose name kind of scared me. <laughs> he would go tap me on the shoulder and he'd point to where we were. Oh, I come to the trumpet part. <laughs> and he was a really good trumpet player. He could play 64th notes, and, you know, and I couldn't even get close to those. You know, but, but that was the beginnings of it, and it was, it was wonderful. You're a really prolific songwriter. What? When did you write your first song? Um, I think I wrote a song when I was a little kid, but it's pretty silly. Um, but uh, I started playing bass guitar, and uh, I would sing lead, but you know, I could always sing, har- I don't know, I, I knew how to sing harmonies really well. And then I, uh, <clears throat> my brother uh, went away to college and left an acoustic guitar, so I taught myself how to play guitar based on what I knew from the bass guitar. And so I... I People look at me, why do you play the, the D chord like that? That's how I taught myself, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I started playing bass with Carol McComb, who was in San Diego, and she was a very accomplished singer-songwriter and guitar, great guitar player, had really long, beautiful hair, and played at folk clubs in San Diego. So I met her through another friend, so I started playing bass and singing with her. And uh, so what, during that time, I wrote my first song, and... Uh, and then <clears throat> moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1971 and uh, met a bunch of political people, you know, uh, uh, fighting the, you know, against the <clears throat> Vietnam War and stuff. But also met a lot of musicians. And one musician who ended up building a recording studio became one of my really good friends and partners. And uh, so. In the process of building recording studios, I had ac- I did trade time carpentry for recording time. So when I would write a song, I got to record it, you know. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh, so that was like in the late 70s and then the early 80s. And uh, and then I got the bug, you know. I mean, and I just kept writing. And yeah, I was fairly prolific. But the weirdest thing, the most prolific of my whole life has been the last eight or nine years. And uh, just... I've written so many songs and, and able to record them, again, mostly for trade time mm-hmm. at my friend's recording studio in San Francisco. 
And it's it's still a mystery. I don't know how it works. I mean, I just, I remember being at one song I was listening to this morning uh, on the drive down here. Uh, I remember I was at a coffee shop, the Cafe Trieste in Sausalito, where I lived for a long time. And I drank some really strong espresso and like got this idea and I, and it just jumped in my head and I was driving somewhere. I had to go to the bank and I could barely talk to the 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 person at the bank because the song was roaring. My oh, that's a really good lyric, you know. And um, so by, by the time I got home, I I got my guitar and a lot of times I hear him in my head, you know. But so that's one way songs come to me. It's more rare. But the the other way is that I'll just be playing my guitar and I go, oh, I've never played that before. And then I'll just hum a line and just melodies come and then usually melodies and no lyrics and sometimes even chord progressions in a whole arrangement even where the harmonies are but I have no idea what the song is about or what the lyrics are and then something will jump in and then oh that's it you know the hook and then the song will just assemble itself around that hook it's a wonderful and totally mysterious process. Yeah. Carol McComb must have had some influence on you in that regard too she's quite the songwriter right? Oh yeah, it, it's one thing that she did. She uh, suggested, um, in, in when we played out, that I sing uh, a Merle Haggard, so- Merle Haggard song, which was uh, "Mama's Hungry Eyes," and I was able to mimic certain people's voices so I could sound exactly like them. Um, I I could do that with Greg Allman later. I could do that a little bit with John Lennon, though not. I couldn't never get as good as John Lennon, but I could approximate. But Merle Haggard, I could sing almost exactly like him, and uh, and then and she she wrote songs and and but I wasn't quite writing when we were together, because of her um, playing with her, we were approached at one point uh, Joan Baez and David Harris who just they were married and he, he had gone to prison, to resist the draft for the Vietnam War, and they were both pretty, well obviously pretty famous. And I, you know, so they all came down and, and a big group of them to do this anti-war thing. This is like in 1970. It was about a aircraft carrier, the the Constellation in San Diego. Right. And they basically it was just a straw vote to see if people supported this killing machine going off and you know killing people in Vietnam. You know, the the country was pretty divided about that war. Um. So anyway, so I met Joan Baez on my. 20th birthday, I think, and then met David Harris, and we became lifelong friends. In fact, I saw him just before I moved down here. And uh, so after this project was done, they said, why don't you guys all move up to Northern California? So we did. So uh, I lived in, in the Santa Cruz Mountains just above Palo Alto, and that opened me up to the whole San Francisco Bay Area, which I just fell in love with. So over the next bunch of, next 50 years, I lived uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains and then in San Francisco and then in Sausalito, God, for almost 30 years, and then uh, in San Anselmo the last 10 years before I moved up here, or moved down here. So, San Francisco was really a musical mecca then too, wasn't it? It, it really was. And I met some wonderful people. Um, uh, one of my favorites was... Uh, it's, it's called Hyde Street Studios. It's a, it used to be Wally Hyder's in the old days, and a lot of famous bands, the Grateful Dead, Creedence, Frank Sinatra, recorded there. And then in 1980, my friends uh, Michael Ward and two of his partners took it over. And so uh, I did a bunch of carpentry down there 
again for trade time. And one day I was doing some carpentry and I had the radio on and this Credence song came on and I love most of their songs, but this one song for some, I didn't like that much. And this guy walks in and I was just getting ready to belly. Said, I don't really like this song. And I looked up and it was the, it was the drummer from Credence. He goes, hmm, that sounds familiar. And I went, oh yeah, it does. <laughs> just, it was so but I, I met a lot of people. And so my, probably my favorite guy that I met there and, and played with this Prairie Prince the drummer with the tubes and he, he you know he still tours with the tubes and todd rundgren and, and a lot of famous people this was starship too wasn't he yeah and he was actually in the original journey in the way 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 back mm-hmm. yeah so uh i i heard i saw him play uh, and i said i asked my friend michael think he'd record with me he said sure he loves to play so you know i pay him you know i i, I came in some money so i could pay anybody that recorded with me and uh so we've recorded a bunch of songs together and he's just one take wonder he's such a good drummer i send him the song i record the song first everything except drums and then send him that and then he kind of listens to it then he comes in and records it the first take is always good enough but i I always have him play two or three because it's so much fun to watch him play you know so uh and then i you know i met lots of great guitar players and saxophone players and drummers and stuff and so it was yeah it really was a mecca for me so were you making your living as a musician or in carpentry carpentry i i hardly i think i've hardly ever made any money as a musician you know occasional gigs here and there but mainly i i a lot of times i would pay to play i'd have a gig and i would if any money that we'd make i would take my share and give it to the full somebody that played with me who was a full-time musician because i was making money as a carpenter so I never, no, I never really made money. Yeah. Did you, did you have dreams of the big recording contract and stardom and any of that? Oh, yeah. No, when I, you know, of course, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be the next Beatles like every, everybody else that played music. Um, and, but I did have some, some reality to it. Uh, I, um, at one point, Tommy Two-Tone, before they were famous, uh, were, rehearsing and recording in the studio at my before the big before they moved down to uh the wally hyder was down in downtown san francisco it was uh, in his my friend michael ward's grandfather's house so we mm-hmm. built and, uh, and but we had you know four of us lived at that house so we down in the basement we built a recording studio so tommy two-tone which was basically tommy heath and uh, jim keller who was the lead guitarist and they wrote songs together and stuff were down there and we became friends so we did carpentry together um, I recorded, uh, I sang, add some vocals and bass on some of their their demo tapes, and, and I even did a gig with them once, again, before they were famous. Then at one point, this... Which, uh, which band was this again? This is Tommy Two-Tone. Oh, okay. You know, the 8375309. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably got the phone number wrong, but but uh, anyway, so at one point, this big limo shows up outside, and they signed the, this deal, I think it was with Columbia, I don't remember exactly, but for a major recording contract, you know. And next thing you know, they had a big hit on the radio. And then a few years later, they had the, the big phone number song, and they were on MTV, you know. And uh, we kept the touch a little bit. But, you know, and then uh, also I met uh, Bonnie Hayes and Chris Hayes. And Chris Hayes ended up the lead guitarist in Huey Lewis in the News. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of rubbing shoulders with all these people that are making it. I said, oh, what about me? What about me? And uh, at one point... Uh, Tommy or Jim and Tommy Two-Tone said, hey, go talk to Brian Rohan. He's our, you know, our rock lawyer. And, you know, so I took him a tape and he sent it off to people. And I got some really good response from uh, David Geffen and I think another 
major label. <laughs> so funny uh, thinking about this. This is in the early 80s. And uh, so um, I was re- down at Hyde Street Studios recording something, and the guy said, hey, uh, we just heard that you you got a possible, you know, that you're in touch with David Geffen, Geffen and blah, blah, blah. Can we put this in our newsletter? I said, sure. That, you know, because I was re- recording right. more songs to send to them. They, w- they wanted to hear more stuff. Mm-hmm. And so in this newsletter was picked up by, uh, God, and now I can't even remember his name, but but he was with another major major label in uh, in New York, and uh, so he he calls the studio and they say, "Hey, Jody, this guy from uh, the record company wants to talk to you." Oh so, yeah, so I so I started sending him stuff too, and he was really interested. But you know, of course, none of it came to anything. You know, but it was it was fun for a while. Yeah. I almost I almost had the big time, and I think about that time. You know, the, you know, I. Would I have survived it if I had made it big? You know, I would have loved to, you know, rub his shoulders and meet all these other musicians and tour the world and stuff. But I remember running to, to Jim Keller, uh, Tommy Two-Tone, when they played uh, a show in Santa Cruz, I think it was. And I saw Jim afterwards, and he said, it's a crazy lifestyle. You know, you can't really have a relationship because you're gone all the time and you're living out of a suitcase. And, you know, and then you hear all the, the stories of big rock bands and all the drugs and alcohol and addictions and troubles and thought and, and egos you know going out of control right. you know i've wondered god would i have turned into an egomaniac on an asshole or anything if i would have made it famous <laughs> i don't know but i didn't make it so i just like why even think about it but but i'm happy with my limited success over the years i, I still play and i'm still writing and i'm you know i've been I've been able to make music videos to last several years too so you you got married in the early stages there. Did you got married what in seventy or seventy one somewhere around there? Got married in seventy uh, five, yeah, and then uh, that was with Sandy, and and we had a baby on the way, so we we decided to travel north, and so we ended up on the San Juan Islands in Washington State in, in Puget Sound, wow. and uh, so my our son Jasper was born there which was wonderful. I met some lifelong friends that I'm still in touch with. And I've been back several times to the islands. And we stayed there only about eight months and we both got the pull back to California. So, and then we moved back. And then we split up when Jasper was about four or five, but we've, we've stayed friends and she moved down to Santa Cruz and then remarried. And uh, so, but we're still friends. But. Well, that obviously must have impacted your career choices and your willingness to uh, take risks. Nothing like being married with a kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, yeah. At one point, I remember uh, a friend of Michael Ward's, again, the studio owner, Ed Mann, um, had, you know, he was a drummer in one of Michael's bands, and we were pretty good friends. We played some parties together and gigs. He moved to L.A. and ended up in Frank Zappa's band playing drums as well as xylophone and stuff. And uh, so we, he came back up here for a visit, or maybe he wasn't playing in Zappa's band anymore, but we played this party and goes, God, you're a great bass player. Why don't you move to L.A. and we'll, we'll, get, we'll start a band? You know, I was really tempted, but then, I, you know, I was married with a kid, you know, and I was like, uh, I can't, you know, leave that. So yeah. that, it did impact, you know, that. I don't know if I... Would have been happy in L.A. anyway, but yeah. but so I had some opportunities I had to that I had to let go of because of that that responsibility. No regrets. No regrets. No. 
no regrets. That's great. So, you know, I, I don't think I've ever known a musician that I've seen record more albums never trying to sell them. <laughs> well, I did try try for a while. You know, I'd, I'd set up gigs and parties and, and sell a few and here and then. And and, uh, and then at one point I just said, and then I even set it up where you could, you know, buy them online and, you know, digitally and everything. And nobody did. And I just, so I just let it go. And, and so when I would play gigs, I would, or even at our, like at one of our high school reunions, I would announce, you know, we'd play music, then I'd just announce, I have a stack of, or a box full of CDs for free if you want them. So I just realized I don't need to make money, and I probably won't make any money, so why not just give them away, rather than end up with boxes and boxes of CDs in my uh, <laughs> in my storage yeah. area. Well, that's where I, I was amazed just seeing you give away stacks of CDs, and then it, it looked like, it looks like your music really is something you love to give away at this point in time. It's true. Um, I was, I've was i been very fortunate. I have uh, one of my good friends, Elise Winby-Wall. We've known each other since we were teenagers, and uh, her parents were British, and I just fell in love with her family, and especially her mom. Her father died, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, and then uh, her mother died. We used to, then she, her mother went to... Uh, a big care home in uh, Sunnyvale, San Jose. And we, Elise and I would go there and play music quite a bit, maybe once a month. And we learned a bunch of the older tunes from the 30s and 40s because that was their music. And I, I'd bring my little dog Dundee and, and let, let them hold him. Oh, can we hold your little dog? You know? And it was so rewarding, you know. And then uh, when, she, when Jane passed away, she left me some money. And uh, so with that money, I was able to pay musicians that I recorded with, and then start making, I always wanted to make music videos, and there was no there was no wherewithal to do it, but now I could. So that has been my uh, favorite thing to do is, is to make music videos. I made like 30 something over the last 10 years. And then uh, when that money disappeared, um, another longtime friend, Frank Light, who I played music with, I met him in Carlsbad in seventh grade, um, he passed away a little over a year ago, and he left me some money, which I, I just got. So I'm using that to pay for my dog's dental work and my dental work and, and to do a, a few more videos. And the one I'm working on now is with my grandkids. And my uh, oldest grandson, Jonas, who's 15, has been taking drum lessons for five years, and he's a really good drummer now. So I took him to the studio in Oceanside uh, a few weeks ago and into this big green screen room, and they re they recorded him and filmed him live playing along with the song that I'd recorded. And then I got the other kids to sing and, and clap and, and make some different moves. So that's in mid-process. And it's so much fun. It's, it's like my favorite thing to do. Well, that's is that sounds like that's a good part of what brought you back here. That is that is the main reason I moved back down here. Because um, it, was, it was really, I have to admit, it was really hard and really emotionally difficult for me to leave San Francisco and Marin County and the Golden Gate Bridge and all my friends and the music scene and the recording studio. I mean, 50 years of friends up there all yeah. over the area. And uh, But it was mainly to be near my grandkids. After a year and a half of, from from the pandemic shutdown, I didn't see them for a year and a half, and I realized I don't want to miss any more of them. And now two of them are teenagers, and they're going to be grown up and gone before I know it. So, And it's it's it was definitely the right move. 
But plus, I have family and so many friends that I, like you, that I've known since, a lot of them since kindergarten. People that I've known my whole life live in the, in the area. So that's been really wonderful, too. You mentioned Frank Light. Um, we've lost a couple of our compadres. Tell us about Frank Light and about Neff, Larry Neff. Oh, God. Yeah, Larry Neff and Frank Light and I had a band together, God, probably in the late 68, 69 or something. I can't remember what we called ourselves, but it was a trio. Frank started out as a guitar player, and he was a really guitar player, and then he switched to drums. So we were a power trio, and uh, I played bass, Larry played guitar, and Frank played drums. And we'd be rehearsing, and Frank would be playing drums with his mouth open. And we go, Frank, nobody plays drums with their mouth open. Shut your damn mouth. He goes, shut your damn mouth. I'll do what I want. Fleetwood. Yes. Oh, maybe so. <laughs> so anyway, that was the beginnings. And but then over then he Frank ended up moving to the Bay Area too, and we ran into each other in Palo Alto. And so we started. We had a a trio. It was two. He played guitar, and another friend played guitar, and I played bass. And all three of us wrote songs, so we did. We took turns singing lead, and that was really fun. And then years later, Elise, who I mentioned before, and Frank and I did a trio and we I lived in Sausalito at the time and down at the bottom of the hill was the Cafe Trieste. Now there's a famous Cafe Trieste in San Francisco in uh, <clears throat> North Beach and this was the second one they opened in Sausalito. So I got a gig there uh, playing once a month for years and uh, so the three of us would play and it was so much fun. I would go there early and, and you know to set up and get a good parking place and, and me and Frank and at least we'd be setting stuff up just joking and having a great time and so uh, so you know we we did that for quite a while and then uh, things changed and then um, I kind of lost touch with Frank a little bit and then then uh, the last time Frank and Larry and I played together was at Larry's sister Sandra's. Uh, Retirement party. She was a school teacher up in uh, Paradise, and the party was uh, in Chico, and uh, so we went to all went to her house in Paradise, and then like a year or two later, that house burned down in the big Paradise fire. Fortunately, Sandra and her mother, who she was living with, moved down down to uh, San Diego again to, to help oh. take care of Larry, who was then had stage four cancer. But back then, uh, we were all still pretty healthy, so. It was the last time that Frank and Larry and I played music together. It was at this big party at a big uh, outdoor patio at this restaurant in Chico. And it was so much fun. And, and the last song of the night was um, Deo. Oh, yeah, and yeah. the whole party got up and started doing this big chain dance all over the patio. It was like, and we couldn't stop because they were having so much fun. So I started <laughs> making up lyrics and... Take another solo, Larry. Take another solo, Frank. And then make up another. <laughs> and it was just, it was so much fun. So that was, what a wonderful last time to play together. You oh, know? yeah. You know, and then uh, and then the next year, uh, or maybe a couple of years later, at our high school reunion, our 50th, I hadn't seen Larry since then, probably. And Larry showed up, and he was, like, really lost a lot of weight. Yes. I said, Larry, what, you know, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to get it checked out. And it turns out he had cancer of the esophagus I think it was and uh, so he was going down but he was great because he played music at the 
a bunch of us did. We you know, and you too uh, were at the you know part of yeah. the band that played yeah. at the, the reunion, and and one of the iconic moments of that reunion was Larry singing. Um, how does it feel to be you know like a Rolling Stone? He had the whole crowd singing along with him on the chorus, and it was just it was just wonderful. And then uh, he got worse and worse, and I I would see him when I would come down here. And then there was a party. Um, the last one of the last times that yeah, was the last time I saw him. Um, I was with his family, and they were having dinner. And then I had to leave, so Larry walked me out, and he asked me if uh, he said, "Would you sing at my memorial?" And I kind of got all choked up and a little, well, of course, you know, but God, you know. He goes, well, unless I outlive you, <laughs> you know. And it was just, it was just, so we both laughed and hugged, and that was the last time I saw him. And it was just wonderful that that's how Larry is and was, yeah, you know, that yeah. he could always, that, the sense of humor to lighten things up, you know. But uh, And then a couple of years later, out of the blue, I heard that, you know, Frank had was in the hospital with cancer, and... Uh, and we texted a few times and then nothing. And then I finally heard from his girlfriend that he was in hospice. And then he passed away. It was, I think it was September 1st, uh, a little over a year ago, that he passed away. So Good people. Good people. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the hardest thing. I, I had a neighbor in Sausalito who lived to 99. Her name was Mignon Connor. And she was just wonderful. She was born in Sausalito, and she told me so much of the history of that town. But she said that was the worst part of living so long. So almost all her friends had passed away already, as well as some of her adult children. And she said that was so hard, you know. I've never forgotten that. You got a great story about Graham Parsons' room. Yes, I do. Um, I don't know, five, six... Years ago, uh, my, me and my friend Elise, one of my singing partners, were going to sing at a wedding t- for some good friends of ours out in Pioneer Town, which is out near Joshua Tree. And uh, it was going to be a three-day event, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So uh, our plan was to get there Friday night, and then Saturday night was this big party where we were going to play music along with some other people and a big dinner, and then on Sunday was the actual wedding. So I checked around, and I found that really close to where Pioneer Town was, which was, they used to film old westerns there in the 40s, and the the party and the wedding was going to be in the barn where they did the interior shots. But I found that uh, there was a, a motel nearby where Graham Parsons, who was one of my favorite songwriters and singers, um, died. So I con- called them and reserved the room, the Graham Parsons room, for me to stay in. And... Uh, and then Elise got the room next to it, which was the Emmy Lou Harris room. <laughs> and so I uh, had another lady friend with me. And so the three of us went out to dinner, and then we came back. And Elise and I knew a handful of Grand Parsons songs. And so we uh, sang every song we knew. And a couple of them, I got chills. I just got this vibe, you know. And uh, so, and there were some scrapbooks and history things about Graham. And, and so I read through that. And... Uh, I was reading about when he when he died there, and uh, they said that he he was pronounced dead on, on maybe two or three a.m. on September nineteenth, which led me to believe that he probably died the night before, which would be my birthday. So wow. he probably died on my birthday, and I was like, yikes! But uh, and then on Saturday night um, we played music, and I met. Uh, 
Deborah and Barbara, who are, are getting married, um, one of them asked uh, Victoria, oh God, I think it's Victoria Williams. <laughs> My memory's so bad, but she had a, she was a, a singer, songwriter, and she had some hits. And she was on, you know, national TV shows back in the 90s, and then she got MS, and her career nosedived. And, and so she was there, and, and, and uh, so she was gonna sing a song and they asked me to back her on guitar, so which I did. So we talked before, and she was kind of frail, but real sweetheart. And I said, I told her that I was staying in the Graham Parsons room. She said, oh, I was, I've been on stage with Amy Lou Harris, you know? I said, oh my God. And so we, we did two Graham Parsons songs together on that Saturday night. She sang lead on one, and I sang lead on the other, and we sang harmony to each other. And it was just, it was, it was really thrilling. It was, it was one of those moments, you know. And then, uh, so after, then we, the, the next day was the wedding, and then so Sunday late afternoon, after it was all over, uh, we were checking out of the room, and there were some people outside the room, because there was a little Grand Parsons shrine out there. And there was an elderly woman and two younger women, and I said, hey, this is, we're, I'm checking out if you want to come into the Grand Parsons room. I said, oh, yeah. So they came in, and turned out the, the older woman was uh, the owner of Rickenbacker Guitars, <laughs> and which, like, wow. You know, she inherited from her father. And so I said, you know, I just saw the, that uh, that show about the the Wrecking Crew. Yes. You know, yeah, about yeah, backup yeah. musicians that played right. on a lot of big hits. Uh-huh. And I said, please tell me that Jim McGuinn played his own 12-string part on the birds. You know, I said, oh, he did. He definitely did. You know, because I thought it was that, that wasn't Glenn Campbell, was it? You know, no, no, Jim McGuinn <laughs> played his own 12, you know, because he had the Rick and Parker yeah. 12-string, you know. And so that was like the icing on the cake of an incredible weekend. Wow. You know, there's another story i got to get out of you. You had the weirdest gig ever with Doug Kershaw. <laughs> Tell me how that came about and what the heck happened. Well, there was a club out in Escondido. This was probably 1969. And I was playing music with Carol McComb, who was in San Diego. And I was living in Oceanside. And so I played bass, and Carol played guitar and sang, and we sang. To, I sang lead and sang harmony to her. And so we got this gig at this club, and uh, we opened for Bob Lind, who had the hit "Elusive Butterfly of Love." And after the the gig, the manager of the club approached me and said, "Look, uh, Doug Kershaw is going to come to town in a couple of weeks. Do you want to play bass with him? And can you find a drummer?" I said, "Yes." So I did. I found a, a drummer, John Buell a good friend of mine, and uh, we bought his al- couple albums and listened to them, and you know we learned the parts and stuff. And so it was a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night gig, and um, so we get there early and meet Doug, and he's dressed. He has his own clothing outfit, too, so he, he designed his own clothes, so he was dressed in this wild outfit. It was, it was pretty trippy, you know, but he was a nice guy, and so we were looking forward to it. So we get out there, and we're playing, and there's, you know, the place was packed. Uh, I, I'd seen him on the Johnny Cash show, um, maybe the year before, you know, and he just like sawing away on that fiddle, you know, Yeah. and he was almost a crazy man, but he was really good. So, but in the midst of, uh, the evening, he did some things like he'd start before we were ready. And, and, and I looked at John, the drummer, and he looked at me like, is he doing this on purpose? It was like, he was trying to make us look fool, foolish. And, uh, 
It might have been the second night. We we get you know, on Saturday night. We get out there and again. The place was packed, and I I, I haven't plugged my bass in yet. I walked out there. And I was getting ready to plug it into my amp, <laughs> and he starts counting up one, two, three, and I yell, "Wait a minute! I'm not ready!" You know, and the whole crowd looks in shock, and then they all start laughing. And he looks around, and I plug it in. And say, okay, now I'm ready. And then they all <laughs> laugh again. And then he looks. Okay, you know, this guy's got balls. So he starts it, and then we play. You know, and. Uh, so for the final night, um, John and I were, because he kept doing these weird things, making us try to look like fools and stuff. And uh, so we said, look, you know, why are you doing this? We just, we're here, we're musicians. We're just trying to play. We like your stuff. You know, I said, I, said, I apologize. And so that Sunday night, we played the best of all three nights. It was just, we kicked ass. It was so much fun. And his uh, brother who played guitar came up on stage and played a few songs. And it, it was just a great gig. In fact, at the end of it, he offered us, um, he said, you guys want to come to L.A. and play some gigs with us there? And But uh, both John and I declined, which I kind of regret, but we weren't sure if he was going to pull his shenanigans again, <laughs> so we declined. But um, it ended up being a great gig after all. So did you even have a song list or rehearse in advance of that? Well, like I say, we bought... He had two albums out, so we listened. I listened to, you know, John could play with anything. The drummer, it's easier for the drummer. But uh, th- most of the chord progressions were pretty simple, you know, but mm-hmm. it just, but I had to know the kind of the, the stops and the groove. So, but I, I'm a pretty quick study, so I was able to, to pull it off pretty easy. So, and it was just the three of us, just fiddle and his singing and, uh, and bass and drums. And wow. it, was, it was really fun. Wow. So, you know, they say that, that moving back home, it's like, what's the old expression, you can't go home? Right. What's it been like being back down where you grew up? It's been uh, totally amazing. It's totally the right move. Um, I found this wonderful place to rent with an ocean view in Encinitas. You know, I, I, I get to see sunsets every night over the ocean, you know, when it's clear enough, you know, and see ships out on the ocean. But it's it's also a 10-minute drive from my, my son's house and the grandkids and close to so many people that I know. My, my brother lives in Oceanside. Um, I have uh, my nephew lives in Encinitas, really close to me, and tons of friends that I've known my whole life. So it's been been wonderful. Yeah. I don't, and the ocean. I mean, I, I I drive by the ocean whenever I can. I hate the freeway. God, I hate the freeway. It's like L.A. freeway has come to San Diego and Carlsbad. But so I take the coaster out whenever I can and and leave a little early, like I did today. Yeah. So, but it's it was definitely the right move to be down here. That's great. So, what does the future hold? What do you, what do you look forward to? Um. Just trying to stay healthy and coherent as long as I can. <laughs> and, you know, just try to be there for my friends that are having trouble and uh, and have fun with the kids, you know, the grandkids. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, there are challenges. I've, I've got some health issues. I, I just saw my, my new doctor uh, yesterday. And, you know, and so, you know, we all have health issues at this age, my God. That's true. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to deal with that stuff. And... Uh, but, yeah, I mean, just, I know I, I won't be able to keep playing music th- my whole life, but as long as I can, I'm gonna, I'll keep writing songs or, or not, or, or keep playing and, uh, and try to stay active as I can, you know. Yeah. Well, welcome back home. <laughs> Thank you. And yes, you can come back home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living proof. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Well, it's been a really great conversation, Jody. I uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you, and uh, glad you're back. Thank you, and I appreciate you too. Thanks, and I I love your podcast. So this is it's wonderful to be part of one. Oh, thanks. That will help you dream your whole world you can My friendship and my conversation with Jody Calcara serve as reminders about how we seek success and what our search for success says about who we are. Jody's primary source of income throughout his life has been carpentry but I never think of Jody as a carpenter. I doubt that many of the people who know him would think of him that way either. It's safe to say he's known as a singer-songwriter, as a musician. But even there, music is only what he does. Who he is is bigger than that. He is generosity, he's kindness, and in life, a success. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Songs all over this town and Dream Your Whole World Healed, both written and recorded by Jody Calcara. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung.